All right, welcome to a, another edition, a Women's World Cup edition of the Sounding Off on Soccer here at Pittsburgh Soccer Now. It's John Krasinski joining me, uh, point, my fellow Point Park alum, Mike DeCourcy of the Sporting News. Mike is obviously hot on the heels of the United States women's soccer team's coverage uh, for the Sporting News, has been writing columns, been um, just trying to get his hands wrapped all around the women's world cup and it's been, has written some really fascinating stuff. And I, I think we'd love to talk about that, but Mike, it's great to have you back on great to let's talk soccer, maybe even some more things Pittsburgh too, uh, as we, we go through this conversation. Always a pleasure, John, and honored that you would have me on. Well, Mike, obviously we're a few days into the World Cup, Women's World Cup. There's been, a, I think, some really fascinating storylines. Uh, I, I always love, well, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with whenever they play uh, major sporting events on the other side of the globe because you have to deal with the, dif the time differences and stuff. But, but it's also kind of cool watching sports at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or 3 a.m. or things like that. But I don't know where, how you feel about that. Well, I, I I had to do the Olympics, uh, uh, doing them from home last summer, uh, two summers ago from Tokyo. Uh, so I got used to getting up at 4 a.m. to watch gymnastics or 4 a.m. to watch the, the basketball team play or something like that. But it is tough. And it, one of the things that I, I was thinking back to last November, early December, and one of the things that's great about the World Cup, if it's not in our time zone, uh, somewhere North America time zone, South America, uh, is that basically you get up and you get your breakfast and then they start throwing soccer at you hour after hour after hour when it's in Europe uh, uh, time zones or what it was last year with Qatar. Uh, it, it, that's and, that, and I was thinking about that. I was running out to, to get my Diet Coke for the day and and I and I thought, man, I just missed that. There's a World Cup going on, but it's happening in the middle of the night, and that's not great. Uh, so it, it, one of the things that's uh, compelling about that uh, is that FIFA, and I think Gianni Infantino is right about this, is trying to get the Women's World Cup the opportunity to stand on its own, so to speak, for years uh, decades uh, for as long as we've had the Women's World Cup, the way FIFA operated was they said, okay, broadcasters, here's the World Cup, here's the Women's World Cup, here's U20, here's U17, you get all of it for what for X price. And then in the United States, NBC, Fox, uh, ABC, CBS would decide whether they wanted to broadcast the, the World Cup and they'd bid, etc. But then all that revenue, whatever, it, let's say the number was 600 million here in the USA. I don't know if that's the number, right? but 600 million. Well, all that money would be, look what the men did. And then the women in 2019 drew an audience that was one third, basically the size of what the men had drawn the previous summer at Russia. But there was no money ascribed to it at all. And, that, that, and that's why you end up with the women in, in in France in 2019, earning $30 million for their prize pool, while the men in Russia were earning $400 million. Yeah. 400 versus 30. Now, one-third of the audience getting like one-thirteenth the payout. That's not right. That can't, you know, you can argue for equal pay or whatever, but you can't argue 
13 to one when the audience is three to one. That's not logical. So, uh, they, so they, they want to separate that. Well, the, here in the U.S., their contract runs a little longer. Um, they really got the late start on trying to do this, partially because of the pandemic. And so even as recently as a month or two ago, there were countries in Europe still didn't have a contract. It all got squared away. But I don't think that it really got to the point financially where it will, A, when they have it in a time zone that's more amenable to Europe and the U.S., and B, when they have a full ramp up of, okay, we're starting this the day after, you know, maybe uh, Soph Smith scores the winning goal in the in Australia, let's say. Uh, then, like, all right, let's start planning for 2027 instead of like a year out saying, okay, we're going to open this up to bidding, which is kind of what happened in this cycle. Yeah, it, it, right. And I, I, I think in terms of the U.S. women, especially, they, they were kind of like, taking the lead in a lot of these areas but we're seeing other countries like we're seeing the opposite side of it now i mean we're seeing those other countries that just have the such limited resources i mean the story we're following really closely here in pittsburgh is randy waldrum's nigerian women's team and you know it's it's just a battle for them just to, to it was a battle for him to have training camp uh, or not have training camp and just it, 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 but and getting paid and things like that. So um, it's it, so it, it, it's it's interesting. But J Jamaica has a GoFundMe account for their team, you know, just to make the trip. And it, it's but the money from FIFA, it should should. I mean, I know they've granted each national team x amount of money like dollars and things like that um but i mean we're seeing the tv contracts or i mean fox is all it's just it's so much better than it was even eight years ago four years ago like it just i think the coverage has been great i think there's just been a, it's been everywhere um i don't know i just feel like they've grown and but the women u.s women's national teams fight uh has been at the forefront, really, if you yes. follow U.S. women's national team um, coverage in the last four years, that you go to topic number one. That's really topic number one has been, you know, equal pay and equal resources and, you know, and, and I think everything else falls in line with that. Right. Yeah, and they've made uh, the, the obviously here in the U.S., they made a ton of progress with that. Uh, mm. There were disparities in travel and and training and uh, training uh, pitches and all kinds of things like that. There were disparities as recently as four or five years ago. And they've gradually uh, adjusted all of that so that if the men charter, the women charter, uh, if the men stay at the Ritz, the men, the women stay at the Ritz, uh, et cetera. And, and so that's been a, a big step forward for the equality. And then in May, they signed the deal that from now on, all the prize money that the women earn at their World Cup and the men earn at their World Cup is pooled and then split evenly among the participating players. I think the Federation gets a cut. Not sure exactly what the number is on that, but the the Megan Rapino will earn the same prize money for having appeared in Australia this year as Christian Pulisic earned for being in Qatar last year. That's the way it that's the way they decided to make it. And so other some other countries have followed suit with that. Uh, FIFA has increased the prize money. They had promised after 
2019. Hey, we're going to double your prize money. That sounds good on paper, right? From 30 to 60, doubling 100% more. Well, they gave the men 40 million more. They went from 400 to 440, a larger increase than the women were getting. So that was the original plan. So then this year, about a month and a half ago, Infantino comes out with a press release, says, no, we're not doing 60 million. We're doing 115. And there are some prize money structure things in there that, uh, although apparently there's no enforcement apparatus, you're supposed to, as a federation, if you finish, if you go out in the group stage, you get X number of dollars and you're supposed to give a, a particular cut. I think the lowest cut is like 14,000 for going out in the group stage to each of your players who participated. And then you can do whatever with the rest, but your players got to get paid. And that's really important because a lot of the women that are participating in the World Cup don't make a lot of money right. playing women's soccer. Their countries aren't that aren't as invested as they should be or could be. And so that's an important step. Now, we found out later that, like I said, there was no enforcement apparatus, but that's the that's the directive to the federations. And the women will have the capacity to say, we never got paid if that doesn't happen and embarrass their federation and make that one more thing that's on the federation's docket, I guess. Uh, but we still see I, there were problems in England before they left. Uh, the, the reigning European champions, right. one of the favorites to win this World Cup, still fighting with the with England's FA over money, training, et cetera. Uh, it, so it, it, the sport has a long way to go to get appreciated in the way that it should and treated in the way that it should. Remember, it hasn't been that long that, that basically in England uh, wasn't letting any women play at all. And the 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 film, uh, Bennett Lake Beckham is 20 years old now. Right. Uh, for those who've seen it, it basically it's about a young woman who finds a women's soccer slash football team that she can play on. And all the kids in uh, in the park tell her she's crazy for wanting to play. And that's only 20 years ago right. uh, that that movie made sense in England. And we're 20 years later and they're, like I said, European champions, but still fighting uh, to get what they deserve. That's that, that's got to stop. Uh, I, you know, if, if you want to argue that the women and men prize money pools should be uh, should be representative to base based on what their audience is, I can understand that position. Uh, I think FIFA would like to move beyond that and have it be equal, but I can understand that that idea of, uh, okay, at least you're uh, proportionate, um, but you can't continue to have participating countries that that are in the circumstance where they're in, like you said, go fund me, this and that. That's got to go. FIFA has to make sure these women get taken care of. I know they made a step, but they've got to follow up when we get done with this World Cup. They got to follow up and say, okay, you're, did all your players get their 14 grand? They better. Otherwise, we're not giving you your next cut of the World Cup or the Men's World Cup or whatever. Well, and I think it's all steps to important steps to growing the game the way it should be. It's taken way too long. But, you know, again, the U.S. women's team and then we're seeing all these other I, I'm my mind. Blo it's blown a little bit by the Eng the England piece. But but it, it also shows why we U.S. women's soccer in the United States has been ahead of most of the nations. Um, of course, you know, I, I think there's 
a lot of the world has caught up. You've written about that. You've written about that. You know, it's not necessarily one of the reasons why the U.S. may not win the World Cup this year. You said it's been that way for a long time. There's just more teams that are at that level or competitive. And so we can we can touch on all of that, too, um, in, in this conversation. But, but yeah, and I think that's a good segue. You know, you wrote about the U.S. team in terms of before the World Cup started, uh, that this, I think you listed five different reasons. You don't have to list every one right now, but you talked about five different reasons why they, they may not win the World Cup this time around. Real legitimate reasons. And I think they're all, we, you know, we could, we could dissect that, but we've all, we've now had a, a match to watch. We've seen them play against Vietnam. You know, there's, there, there's a lot of talk about, you know, well, Thailand, you know, 11, nothing four years ago, now three, nothing to Vietnam. They, they dominated the match still had 28 to nothing shot advantage. You know, you can go either way, but you wrote a nice piece about how uh, Sophia Smith, you know, really elevated her, having her elevate her game in terms of being able to, to be dangerous on that, uh, that in that final third um, probably did really help pushed the U.S. over uh, in that match. But but yeah, I mean, what? so from your initial takeaway going into the World Cup, after what you've seen uh, the other night, what, what what are your takeaways now? Well, I, I think the first, my first concern is health. Uh, that, that's that's the biggest problem that the U.S. women's national team has. I think yeah, what I what I wrote about, I start, let's start with the fact that I said, look, the idea that they are that they have been a dominant team has always been overinflated. They've been an elite team. They've been a great team. They've been a phenomenal competitive, phenomenally competitive team. They have always fought through. But it, people tend to forget things through history. You go back to 2015. They had to rearrange their lineup in the middle yeah. of the tournament to get it right to set Carly Lloyd loose in the way that she was in the last two three games. And, and to become the player that she was and then make the U.S. the team that it was so that they did dominate Japan in the final, but they weren't a dominant team through much of that tournament. They tied uh, Sweden in group. They barely beat uh, Nigeria uh, in group. Uh, and then they fought to beat China. And they only got one goal in that game. They took nearly 70 minutes to score against Germany. So it was never dominant in that sense. And then it was kind of the same way in France uh, they obviously had the dominant game against Thailand, but uh, but they they were very close against Spain, Ger uh, England, uh, France, uh, and and then somewhat close against the Netherlands in the final. So it, it's it's it, it starts with that idea that that oh the world is catching up. No, the world's always you know there's always been somebody close enough to beat them. Mm -hmm. uh, they just find a way. And how do you find a way when you have? when you have nearly an entire starting lineup, not necessarily your starting lineup, but almost the entire an entire starting lineup out injured. Uh, you lost two of your top three on the front line. You've got Becky Sauerbrunn absent. Uh, you've got Sam Ewis, who started five games in France absent. Uh, that's a big miss uh, for those players. And then I still have great concern, and none of it was alleviated on a Friday night about the defensive midfield position, Andy Sullivan. I, I, I was shocked that Fought Mob gave her a, a rating of over eight because I swear I watched after about 15, 16 minutes into the game, I watched for the rest of the game waiting for her to complete a forward pass, one. 
and I didn't ever see it. I saw her attempt one, two, excuse me. I saw her attempt two and missed them both. Everything else she completed was lateral or mostly backward. I don't, I, th that's a real concern for me. I don't think there is good going forward with her in the defensive midfield. And so he comes out and he starts Julie Ertz in central defense. Does that mean that she can't play? She can't cover because she was pregnant last year and had a baby in August and is relatively fresh back to the game. She didn't start up until August and she did play 90 minutes in each of her final three club games. And she did play 90 minutes in central defense on Friday, but I think she needs to be in the midfield for them to win it. And I don't see that after Friday happening. At least that's not what, that's not the hint that they gave us. Uh, if you don't trust a young uh, back line of, Naomi Garma and Alana Cook against Thailand. Why would you all of a sudden do that when you're playing Netherlands, the the runner up from 2019? So I, that's a big concern for me as well. Uh, and then on Friday, I just thought that all, uh, Soph, was, Soph Smith was very proficient, but that there were just there was just too much wasted. I, I, they had they, they according to Fat Mob, and I do trust their stats most of the time. They yeah, had six blown chances. Yeah, uh, That was twice the number that anybody had to that point in the World Cup. Six blown chances. The most anybody else had was, was three. That's, you know, you can't, in a, in a situation where uh, where winning this group really matters. And, yeah. I, and I, because of the draw, winning the group and finishing second, it's like, it's like the difference between being a number one seed in the NCAA men's basketball tournament and being a number eight. That's the, I mean, that's really the difference between finishing first and second. And they, and they could have made a significant stand toward a goal differential that was going to be hard to beat and they blew the opportunity. So that worries me as well. It, I mean, things could, could blow up a little bit more than we, we anticipate, you know, it might not be chalk as we say, when we talk about NCAA tournament brackets, uh, you know, as well. I mean, Canada tying Nigeria, France tying the reggae girls, like this is some, this is great. Like I mean, the first couple rounds, the first couple matches, I think, you know, I don't know whether it's just being in Australia, the fatigue or whatever, you know, there's different things that may come into play for some of these highly touted teams. But that's that's interesting. I'll be watching that closely as well. But yeah, I mean, I I I, I want to see a little bit more in the attacking end. And you're right; they didn't they didn't really they have to. They're not going to get that many chances against the Netherlands. They're not going to get so when they do get those chances, they have to make them count. Um, but I just didn't see even leading up to that. Um, it, you know, it there were the quality. Where was the quality in the service? You know, where was that defensive midfielder, like you said, you're seeing this gap because Julie Ertz has been unbelievable in that position for the last couple cycle, you know, World Cup cycles. And now she's basically sitting deep playing in a center back spot. And like we anticipate players that in this system in the United States to step, you know, the next person up is going to, you know, be at that next level and because we're so great and we have you know all these great players and i think there is a little bit of a wait and see in some of these positions that's that's definitely one position i i've noticed that too in the defensive midfield spot i know they can play a 4-3-3 though like that that middle person is just so 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 important 
to getting everybody else in sync and 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 also being that two-way player because honestly you know playing i mean julie Ertz, how many times i i think a lot about 2015 and once they reshuffled the deck and how unbelievable she was in those those last all those matches but especially all of the knockout stage matches where nothing nothing got past her and she was also great at initiating you know transition opportunities uh, which which again they're going to need to do because they have the attacking firepower but it's just you know how can they they have to be efficient in the final third for sure. Um, all right. So you wrote a little bit about Sophia Smith as well and Ertz's, Ertz's value to this to this team. You know, what did you see in terms of this last match as far as kind of the other pieces? Um, I know Haran scored and that's a good sign. But but what did you see as far as some of the other pieces? Well, I thought uh, Trinity Rodman did well in, mm-hmm. in replacing uh, Mallory Swanson. It's a big, I mean, that's a big uh, challenge to fill that gap. Uh, I thought she did really well. I didn't think she was great around goal, but she did draw a penalty. Uh, no one other than Soap was really great around goal. And and she even had her moments where she might have made some different decisions. But you score two goals and assist on another, you've done plenty. Uh I, I think that she did well. I, I think Alex Morgan has become a really strong, capable uh, back to the basket. So sort of back to the goal sort of player. Uh, All of a sudden she, she's like Abby Wambach or, you know, like yes, I yes. never thought Alex Morgan would be that type of player, but she's done, she's done really well with that. She's, she's not finishing as well as she used to at this level. She still does in NWSL but she's not uh, scoring as much at this level. She's not getting off the shots that she once did, but her distribution from that spot has been elite. And although you don't have uh, Mallory Swanson out there and and how great she was early in this year, uh, you still have some real talent out there that could, could play off of that with, with obviously with Soph, as we've mentioned, but Trinity Rodman, as well as Alyssa Thompson, I I think those two players, uh, against Netherlands one of the things that we didn't see much of on Friday because of the way the net the uh, Vietnam defense was going to sit back and pack it in yeah the the U.S. speed which is they're probably their best asset against most of the teams most of the elite teams they are another notch faster uh in and that and that's every one of their forwards except for Alex at this point uh and Megan if you want to call her a forward but the uh, Alyssa, Trinity, uh, Soph, those players are really fast. Lynn Williams, really fast. And so we didn't see that much against Vietnam, but m- we might in the Netherlands game. That's kind of what I want to see on Wednesday night is can they get in behind the back line for the Netherlands? And once they do, can they create plays? Can they make good things happen? And that involves whether they whether they start Trinity or uh or lynn or Alyssa, uh one of those three players has to use the speed to get behind and create opportunities and then the u.s has to do a better job of finishing them up yeah and you know you're talking about tactics too you're talking about player selections who's in the starting 11 dealing with all the injuries um you know vlatko and and Novosky, you know this is his first go around in the world cup and 
that yeah you you mentioned that in your in your column too you know that that this is a question mark you know jill ellis is jill ellis took some lumps too you know along she the did. way but i think but she, she won she they, won. You know, the lumps were all picking um the, while she is doing you know while she's winning games she's getting picked at uh okay. the difference being that Latko's taking some l's i mean uh took the l against uh sweden in the opener of the olympics uh, drew with the Netherlands in a knockout game. They won on a penalty shootout and then they couldn't manufacture anything against Canada in the semis uh, and wind up losing on a, yeah, you know, it wasn't a bad penalty call. It just was brutal. Yeah. You know, it was one of those uh, Tierna right. Davidson uh, made a decision and it was, and it was the right call, but it wasn't blatant and, and you hate to lose like that kind of thing, but they couldn't get anything going against Canada. And this all goes back to what he is uh, you know, what he's calling from the sidelines, so to speak. Uh, I'm not blaming it entirely on him, but yeah, his job is to take all these talented players and turn it into something good. Absolutely. He is. It is his job. And, you know, again, it's a pressure. All of a sudden, it's definitely a pressure cooker to walk into this situation. I mean, two-time defending World Cup champs, you, you know, it's like, you know, Coach K steps out, you know, who's the next guy step in there. And, you know, these that's a type of uh, coaching position you're stepping into. Uh, never easy. You know, we've seen some some people be able to do that seamlessly. But, you know, the other thing is, as a coach, you want to implement, you know, what you the way you see the game, the way you, you know, and personnel is changing, too. So he has to adjust, really adjust. And so I think he he absolutely has his hands full. Yeah, this World Cup. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I have uh, empathy for him uh, because he, he wants to recreate the USWNT, uh, a fresh young group of talented players, Katarina, Car Katarina Macario, uh, Mallory Swanson. Oh, sorry, you don't get either one. Right. Uh, that's, you know, he, so he built the this whole concept around having those players and Cat uh, has not re returned to competition uh, from uh, from her April 2022 knee injury. Uh, obviously, Mallory fought like heck to try to come back from a torn patella tendon, which was just, you know, which shows why she's such a champ. And it would have been awesome for her to do it. But uh, that it just wasn't uh, it was an unreasonable timetable. It wasn't logical. And, and she wasn't able to make it back either. Uh, so losing those players kind of. Yeah, you still have talent, as I mentioned, Lynn Williams, Alyssa's very young, but she's really gifted and fast. And then Trinity Rodman. I, the one criticism I would have of, okay, you don't have those players, so what are you going to do next? I thought he should have embraced the idea of Trinity earlier. I thought she was the most obvious candidate to replace Mal when she went down. And I think he was really late to that. Uh, he, he he didn't start her in the send-off game. She comes on, scores twice against Wales. Uh, the, again, in another relatively lifeless game to that point. And she comes on and scores twice and they win 2 nothing. I thought that they might be a little bit further ahead if he'd embraced the idea of Trinity uh, earlier in the process once, once you knew Mal was out. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good point, especially when you see the difference, the level when she stepped on the field. And, um, you know, I, I think that's part of almost 2015-ish. They, they were coming off the 2011 loss 
they there was a lot of doubts. That's when Jill Ellis was got the most criticism, if I recall. And they kind of have to find themselves in that tournament. And I think this is the same with this group. I think they have they're going to have to find themselves a little bit over the course of the next few matches. And I think the next match is going to be the real test, uh, Netherlands. So so what are your thoughts heading into it? Uh, it is is like obviously it's the rematch of the the final, but but uh, I think a chance for them to to build confidence, if anything. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is having watched um, the Netherlands play against Portugal on Sunday, uh, that the the concern about that game probably probably had to be mitigated at least a little because the Netherlands was not great uh, in the Portugal game. They're playing there. They have a major injury as well. Vivian Medima, right. uh, one of the great goal scorers in the world, out uh, injured as well. Uh, so they're 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 also missing some of the punch from their lineup. They still have a very good team with very good players. Uh, Berenstein's a terrific player. Uh, I, I I think that they've got some some real talent there, and and they have an organization that's worked well. But I do think that there that if you watch that game, you had to look at it and say, okay, uh, if the U.S. can play to the level that they're capable of playing, and I'm thinking about perhaps the Canada game in uh, the CONCACAF championship last year. I think the England game they played in Wembley last year, where they ended up losing, I thought they played fine in that game. I didn't think they were great, but I thought they were fine. I mean, I think if you reach that level uh, against the Netherlands on Wednesday, I think you can win the game. Uh, but they have to, they, ha they can't play anything like they did against Vietnam. Uh, and again, it won't be a similar game to Vietnam. So just... Just in terms of rhythm and connection, it wasn't there. Uh, and some of that might have been because of the lineup that they fielded was an uh, an orthodox lineup, one they hadn't been showing a lot so far uh, this year, and so maybe it was a special lineup for uh, for Vietnam, and that you're going to see something more typical uh, when they go against uh, the Netherlands. But I, I do, I do still have concern about that that piece between midfield and that, uh, that's that central defensive spot. I know that Naomi Garma, as long as she doesn't pick up an injury between now and Wednesday night, she's going to be out there in central defense. I know now that Julie Ertz is going to be out there. Uh, she the showed point, she's yeah. certainly capable of playing 90, but which position? That's the right. question. Right. I would, I would think that it, the team is better off with the younger defense, with Alana Cook out there in central defense, and and Julie in her customary position and the and the position that changes the U.S. makes them better defensively because she's better sideline to sideline than Andy Sullivan, and much better offensively because she's much better going forward. And I think that whoever the midfielders are in front of her, whether it's Lindsey Horan or uh, or whether it's Savannah Demello. Uh, or, or whether um, uh, you see some players start to return from injury, uh, I, 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 whoever it is in front of her is going to feel more empowered going forward if it's Julie. Yeah. If they don't feel she's the right player or they don't feel uh, comfortable with Alana, I'd feel better about the central defense because Julie's back there, but I'd feel a lot worse about everything that's in front of that, and that's how you win games. Yeah, yeah. And I, I tell you, Mike, this is this is really what I enjoy talking about in terms of, you know, World Cup discussion. Of 
course, World Cup is bigger than, you know, it's one of those larger than life sporting events. And it also generates so much uh, talk in the mainstream media. And of course, you know, you and I have watched literally watching mainstream media just in all kinds of weird, crazy angles. And everyone has their takeaway. And, you know, unfortunately, United States women's soccer team, you know, standing up there for the national anthem and a few players aren't singing along. And, you know, of course, that becomes a lightning rod uh, topic of conversation for some reason, for some people. Um, you know, this is why we love sports. You and I, we want to break it down. We want to talk about the X's and O's. Um, but of course, these kind of topics come up. And honestly, like this is the part I'm frustrated. I'm sick of. And I, I, it's, it's like a double-edged sword with the U.S. women's national team because they've done so much in terms of growing sport and in, in empowering women, uh, giving great, uh, inspiring examples and just being, I mean, just here in Pittsburgh alone, Megan Klingenberg, just her presence being on that 2015 team and the individual, the person that she is, I, I think she inspired a lot of young young ladies here. When they played that match here, the first match after they won the World Cup, it was played in, at Heinz Field. Uh, it was Heinz Field, yeah, uh, and at currently Acrisure Stadium. But you know that place, we had over forty plus thousand uh, fans in Pittsburgh. People really care about women's sports here, and 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 having an, a Pittsburgh athlete female Pittsburgh athlete elevated to that st status as a world cup champion. I mean, it meant so much. And, and that stadium was so loud. And when she scored it, I mean, if there was a roof on top of it, it would have been blown off. I mean, it was amazing. And, but then I sit here and I feel like we're going, we're taking steps back as a society because we're just sitting here, you know, it, they're getting all caught up in them, you know, whatever political, you know, opinion you have on, on these, these type of topics, but that's the beauty of our country is that we have this freedom to express yourself and they can stand there and they can do whatever they want. They're, they're about as patriotic as, as, as the next, I mean, the most patriotic people I know because they're doing so much for so many in this country, women and girls, especially, but it, it's just, I don't know. I, that's the part I'm frustrated with, but I know you, you know, you were talking about this a little bit on Twitter today and, and things like that, but it's, 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 it absolutely frustrates me. Well, I see, I see that uh, reaction primarily to Megan Rapinoe. I mean, she's become a lightning rod for that. Sure. Uh, I, I, I imagine it goes back to when she uh, protested against the anthem uh, by kneeling uh, not long after uh, uh Colin Kaepernick did that. Um, and I thought, you know, my, my feeling about the kneeling protests, I had no great, I, I had no, I had no problem with it at all. I mean, I, I, that's to me, that is not offensive. Um, I did think that, and I did write in whatever, whatever match they played at the time, I did write that. I thought you don't do that when you're in the national team. And I think she did it once. And after that, the uh, it the, the, it was it, it was stopped uh, for a while by a um, by a rule that the that the uh, U.S. soccer had in place, and then ultimately that rule was rescinded. But nobody has changed their demeanor, uh, their approach. But I, I I did think that with the national team, look, if you're going to wear the crest, um, if you're if you don't want to play for the national team for that for political reasons, that's your decision. 
But if you're going to wear the crest, you should stand for the anthem. That I. But when you're wearing when you're when you're playing for OL Rain or whoever, um, okay, that I didn't have I I I understood that. But then I like to make that something that okay is unforgivable and never again. You don't want to hear anything she has to say. I I, I don't think that's what's happened. What's happened is she disagreed with the former president of the United States, who some people agree with. Um, and I think she has a right to disagree with the former president of the United States. Uh, I don't, I, 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 but some people will never forgive her for that. Uh, and that to me doesn't wash. Uh, she has worn the United States crest like 200 times now after Friday night. It's not like to, it's 200. I was thinking I trying to calculate what number was, but now I remember that was her 200th cap. Mm-hmm. that's about 200 more things than a lot of people who are protesting protesting against her have done for the United States. So I, 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 I certainly, uh, I, I certainly agree with her right to have political positions. I certainly agree with her right, uh, with, and, and with her stance on fighting for equality within us soccer. Uh, and she, she and her teammates, Alex Morgan, uh, many others have been extremely successful in that fight. Uh, I certainly agree with that. And so I, I understand why you're frustrated. I, when I wrote about Megan in advance of the tournament, this being her defined last World Cup, I got a lot of feedback about, you know, I, I can't like this team. Be, you know, I don't want to hear from them. And it, look, John, I, I've dealt with these people um, in, in a professional situation and somewhat very limited, like not in terms of, you know, they know who I am. And so that, that they're, we're interacting, but just seeing them when I was in France in 2019 for the first game of the world cup. And I was in a cafe and some of the other, uh, some of the women from the national team, including Megan, Ali Krieger, uh, several other players. And I've seen them, how they interact with the public and it's just, they're phenomenal. I mean, they are just the best representatives of the United States you could ask them to be. So I don't have any patience for that at all. If people want to say it, you can say it. But you're probably going to get muted on Twitter by me uh, if you say it, uh, because uh, it's it's ridiculous. I've been around these women a lot, and I've been doing this for 40 years in a wide variety of sports. And there have been very few people. Uh, that I've come up, uh, that I've that I've met with and dealt with, that I enjoy more and and am enlightened by more than the U.S. Women's National Team. I, I echo that sentiment 100%. I have not obviously covered as many U.S. Women's National Team um, games in person, but when I have, and you know whether you're in, back in the zone and you're talking to them off off the record, on the record, just fantastic, fantastic, like. You know, that's the thing, like the men's game, I felt I've interviewed the men's team many times, too, uh, in situations. And I always felt like it was so felt so controlled and so like not. I mean, again, the guys are probably great one on one when I've had them here and there. But but the women, it was just it was it was just so happy to talk to you and so happy to talk about 
the game and really they you know because i'm like an x's and o's i like to talk about the tactics and things and you know like you know i, I carly lloyd or or, or megan rapino or you know they really their interest perks when you start asking those questions like because they're they love the game not more than anything else probably uh and, and of course megan klingenberg you know she's taken she's been very uh, generous with her time and she's done i've uh, been on my podcast and things like that like I, and i've watched her with this is just Megan Klingenberg at her camp. I mean, she just just does a camp every year for young girls in Pittsburgh, and that's what it's all about. Like, and 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 I think that's the these are the little bits and pieces that. Well, yeah, maybe they they're all taking certain stands in different situations that do ignite a political conversation, and people all of a sudden take sides. And but I we you and I we've seen the other side of it. And that's 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 really that's what I'm probably probably frustrates me more than anything. But um, but yeah. So anyway, let's transition. Let's talk about we're talking about Pittsburgh athletes. Um, you know, before I let you go, I, I just you know, I had a chance to read your column about, you know, the Mount Rushmore Pittsburgh athletes. I, I know I saw you did Sporting News did it kind of started with the cities that have four um, four major sports and then kind of worked their way down and. First of all, I always felt like Pittsburgh and Cleveland sort of split the fourth team, right? Like the, the Cleveland has the NBA team, Pittsburgh has the NHL team. <laughs> but other than that, you know, we're we're one in the same, right? Um, and but now, you know, a little bit of the elevation of the Riverhounds uh, into starting to gain a little bit of relevant re, um, relevance. It, it, you know, I think that's helping in some respects, I still think we're 20, 30 years down the road, probably from some sort of significant conversation about a Pittsburgh soccer team or contributions uh, in the level of stratosphere of what, you know, the Mount Rushmore, but I just, I just had to bring that up. Um, but I do have a few um, candidates for the Mount Rushmore and the Pittsburgh um, uh, soccer players, but I'll, I'll hold that till we're done uh, before we get off here. But but yeah, Mike, I, I, you know, obviously can't, I can't argue with the four, uh, the only one I would say, and you had obviously, um, you know, Mario Lemieux, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green, um, and of course, Roberto Clemente. So I, I, I can't argue with that four. My only exception would be like, where's, I, I would love to put Arnold Palmer on a, on, on a, you know, in, in a grouping with, in the top four or five. Um, I just Maybe it's because I love golf and I love Arnie and I know what he means to so many people uh, in this area, but also all around the country. Um, but anyway, Mike, I, I just love the piece, but uh, you've had some really good feedback from it too, haven't you? Oh, a lot of feedback, without a doubt, as I expected. Uh, when when we did the project last summer, I I wrote the pieces for Philly, L.A., and one other that I can't remember. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, and, but I, 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 I said to the, to, to my editor, uh, Bill Trochi, who came up with the idea and executed it both summers. Uh, I said, Bill, we got to do Pittsburgh. I, I just can't, and not be, you know, partly, obviously a big part because I'm from there and have the deep ties and affection to the region and the teams and, and all of that. But uh, I, I I knew that it would be a fascinating discussion because for me, it, it, first of all, uh, first of all, there you you couldn't have anybody who didn't wear the city's jersey. So although Arnie would be an outstanding right. selection and was one of the people that when I came to the meeting, I didn't remember that that was a rule. It had been a year. So 
uh, or maybe it never came up before. Uh, but I went to the, to there with Arnie as my fourth pl- per person yeah. player. Uh, and they said right away, nope, can't have him. He's that's not the that's not how we do it. You have to have played for the for the city. Okay, so Arnie's out not because he's not deserving, but because he didn't play for the city. So uh, so then it became all right. I always knew Mario, Roberto, Minjo, no brainers right. for me. Any anybody who argues that those three are not locks just doesn't get it. I mean, I, I'm we. I've had a few in the in a few hockey fans mostly, but I've had a few that have argued against Joe and that sort of thing. But I'm like, no, no, no. You had to be there, maybe. I don't know, but I was there. I was only a kid, but I was there, and I know what Joe meant, and I know what all the people who were there said Joe meant. So he's on automatically. So then there was the fourth, and that's what made it a fascinating discussion to me, because you have Willie Stargell. You have Sidney Crosby, you have Franco Harris, you have Ben Roethlisberger, you have Terry Bradshaw, you have Jack Lambert, who is iconic because of how he played. He was also tremendous, mm-hmm. but he was probably the third best player on the defense during those great 70s defensive teams. Jack Lam- Jack Ham was a greater technician, so to speak. He was a greater pure linebacker. And of course, Joe Green, as I mentioned, so he's probably the third, but 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 he but he resonated with the city and still does because of how he played and what he brought, uh, and so I think you had to discuss him. I I some people brought up Troy Polamalu as well because he was just such a dynamic. He's, he's there. He's in the back of my mind. I, sure. I when you talk about all time great Steelers, but again, it's so hard. I mean, it's so that's hard. what makes that's but that's what made it such a fascinating discussion to me. That fourth one had so many candidates. We, There were cities that you have four great athletes, don't get me wrong, but not like these guys. I mean, like their first four, maybe one of them. But beyond that, the next three guys, like any any one of Pittsburgh's runner-ups could take their spot if they played there. That's what made it so cool. We could have had a, a second Rushmore of the next four, Sid and whoever else, Willie, uh, Ben maybe, I don't know. But the next four could have could have been put up there, and then like you could take one of the other cities and say this is better. Uh, that's how great. But that's that's how I great agree. it's been. I agree. Totally. I mean, you can see. I could see Onus Wagner and Sidney Crosby like Honest. considered yes. by some as the best to ever play in their sport. I mean, by some. I'm not saying. I'm not. But some would say that those two, you know, could be in any other city. I mean easily yes uh, if if sydney played in toronto like just think about that um, right is the iconic status that he would have probably gained in canada that not that he doesn't already have that that status in canada but but you know uh, yeah i agree i think there are just so many uh, i mean it's like you look at that and you go man i can't i can't believe i have to leave sydney crosby off this list or or uh, someone along those lines. I mean, look at, like you said, Willie Stargell. I mean, I know it, you know, as a kid growing up outside of Pittsburgh, Willie, I mean, obviously, you know, the Steelers were so prominent, but what Willie Stargell did in 1979, I mean, what he did in the postseason and how impressive he was. And then as a youngster, I'm learning about this player. Okay. He's been around since 
a long time. He's done it at this at a very high level. And and this was the, he was at the uh, end of his career. And he right. what he did in that World Series was so impressive. Uh, you know, so I, I think there there's a lot of really good candidates. And I think Pittsburgh is it just just goes to show um, how great of a sports city it is. With, with, it came down to probably more than anything, Franco versus Sid. And I think there are a couple things that pushed Franco over the top. I think, first of all, Pittsburgh's a football city. I mean, come on. I mean, who are we kidding? I mean, it's a great hockey town, but it's a football more than anything from high schools to in the Mon Valley and Beaver County and up to Kiskey Valley, et cetera. It's, it's a football town and, and it's a Steeler town as well. Uh, and so it had to probably be a second Steeler and why Franco ahead of Bradshaw, uh, Ben uh, Lambert, whoever. Well, I think, I think one of the things that impacted me was I, I will confess that, when when he passed away in December of last year, I will say that I I, I mean we've lost a lot of players from the '70 Steelers, etc. Um, Willie dying. W- Willie was the only player in this discussion that I covered on a day to day basis. I did the Pirates in '82, his last year, and he was wonderful to deal with, and so I probably had the closest uh, affiliation with him of all. And I and he passed away, but I I was really hit hard by Franco's death. It really struck me, uh, and I and I when I was voting, I, I I and we when I was discussing it in the open forum, I will admit that that impacted me. It wasn't because of the recency of that event, but because of how I felt after it. I mean, he really mattered. He really did uh, in every way uh, to to that team and to that city in a time when the city needed it. I I grew up uh, in the Mon Valley, watched the the valley completely shut down uh, over the course of my time from the time I was starting college until the time I left town when the press closed in 92. Uh, watched the valley just, you know, sort of like in those shows where the, you get a blackout, a rolling blackout, and you see all the lights go out. That's kind of how the Mon Valley went. And all that's going on. And here are these great Steelers uh just giving you something to be excited about and all the people who like me had to leave pittsburgh because the economics of the of the city changed uh that's something you could put in your pocket and take with you that you know those steelers those penguins those pirates you took them with you to an extent and so i think that you know franco was such a big part of building that uh, with starting with the immaculate reception and the thousand yard fresh uh, rookie year, and then moving on all the way through, uh, that I I think that a lot of the people that were arguing against him on Twitter today, uh, I think they missed the how much his arrival mattered. And Joe Green was one of the people who said, you know, everything changed when Franco came in the door, and as much as Joe changed the the Steelers because of his insistence upon greatness it it happened when franco walked in and, and started running for 100 yards a game yeah i think that's true and like i said that on a national scale too those are the, those were the two guys i think especially franco um and he he what was interesting too is he stayed in pittsburgh for so long and he his rest of his life and he I I was very involved in the nonprofit community. I've done a lot of different 
the things in my career and been very involved in a community uh, in and around it, just in terms of different things that go on um, in terms of philanthropy and different, uh, you know, all kinds of different activities that are community oriented. And I, I can tell you, I, how, I can't tell you how many times I ran into Franco Harris at, at an event or one of these big event or community event, something that was going on. He was always present. He was always around and he was, he was a real ambassador of goodwill. You know, he, he, for that, I mean, just that alone, people and people love that because they just loved it seeing their, you know, one of their guys, one of the guys that did it uh, accomplish so much. And as on the field, like in your column, I think you wrote you, you gave some really good examples of his toughness, you know, of of what he was like. Yeah, maybe he did go out of bounds, but he was ahead of his time, you know, in, in that respect and uh, those type of things. But but he was an ambassador and he was always open to um all sports flourishing in Pittsburgh. I, there were times where he, I've, you know, I've seen different quotes about him. Obviously, what he did for women, the women's uh, professional, the, I think the football team here, um, here as well, like just little things. He was just involved investing and seeing, uh, you know, com the community grow in, in, in every aspect. So I think that's that's it. That is important. That does matter. Um, I absolutely believe that. So I'm, I'm with you. I, I'll take those four. And, you know, to this point, I, I, I'll totally, I'm totally with that group. I, Cause I sat there and I tried to look for some, some other reason to knock Franco off the group and it, it I never could. And yeah, I, I, I think that uh, in the end it, we made the, the right choice. Uh, Sid is incredible, amazing. And, and the city has three more Stanley cups because of him. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and if it was like a starting five instead of the, the quartet, uh, he would certainly have been on there. Uh, but uh, I, I I felt like that, and it wasn't my choice, but my vote was for Franco. I, I was one of several on the panel, and my vote was for Franco after we discussed it. Uh, but I felt like that that it, it just, that part of it, the, the fact that Pittsburgh at its core is a football town. And I grew up with that. And I've seen it from afar now for 30 years. Uh, I know that the Steelers still are, you know, they resonate all across the country. And I always, I always laugh, John, uh, as, as someone who, as I mentioned, uh, didn't leave Pittsburgh by choice. Um, that when I watched the, I even wrote a column about this one time. When I watched the Steelers play and they go somewhere like L.A. and the, all the fans are wearing black and gold and I hear this nonsense from the play by play person. Oh, the Steelers travel well. No, you don't understand. Those people moved to L.A. 30 years ago. They had to leave. They're that, you know, they're that's that person. Those people aren't people that like jumped on a plane on Thursday. They've been there for 30 years. That's how it works. And I've been in some of those uh, audiences in Cincinnati uh, during my 18 years there and uh, for uh, nine years here, I've seen the Steelers play a bunch uh, at uh, Lucas Oil Stadium. I think they're coming back again this year. Uh, that's that that part of it. Uh, uh, the, the Steelers are always going to be the uh, at least at least in my lifetime, they're always going to be the, the number one uh, of the major league teams. Uh, maybe not, the, you know, maybe this, the Penguins will get a couple more cups and the Steelers will no longer be the most successful team, but I think they'll always be the heartbeat of the region. 
Absolutely. I, I couldn't just, I can't disagree at all with that. Uh, I just want to do my honorable mention now while I have you, you might, this might be just over your head, but I'm just going to say this now. So my little honorable mention to this is uh, Aldo Buff Dinelli. And oh, yeah. I, so we're talking because there's a Steeler connection. That's the reason why I bring it up. Um, can you just imagine, okay, this, this would warp most people's mind, but can you imagine Mike Tomlin, okay, was at one time a soccer player and scored four goals to beat the uh, Mexican national team. Okay, yes, I know it was 1932. And later, the, so so Aldo, Buff Danelli, really Buff, Buff scores four goals against the, the Mexican team in, in 1932, I think to qualify for the World Cup um, or in the World Cup. And, you know, I mean, this is a guy who, who was, for, for whatever it was worth, was it, was one of the best players in the United States. As far as soccer goes, he was a legend. He was inducted into the United States soccer hall of fame. Uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, they did play and participate in the 1934 world cup. And so he has that going for him. And then he later, you know, he's involved in football and he becomes the, the head coach of the, the Steelers for a year or so. I think when they were the Steagles, if I'm correct, maybe the Steelers one year and then the Steagles when they combined with Philly, but just, the, just a, it's a fun little um, story, but if anybody is ever interested in reading up, uh, it's a fascinating story. We did, I did do a piece on him, I don't say about five or six years ago, uh, when, about, you know, his influence in the initial uh, U.S.-Mexico rivalry when it first became, I mean, obviously way, 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 way back then. I had a little fun with that. But yeah, the fact that he did score four goals against uh, Mexico um, was pretty fascinating. And and uh, he played for Morgan FC, which was one of those, um, you know, teams that were very competitive and would compete in the U.S. Open Cup and, and go very far. All, a lot of teams in Pittsburgh did really well in the U.S. Open Cup back in those days. But anyway, just just a little shout out, little honorable mention to someone who, you know, if the times were different, he might he might be up there, but I like it because I one of the it, it illustrates, John, how much Pittsburgh, how much American soccer has changed in my lifetime. Because obviously Buff played decades before I was born. Um, and my dad talked about Buff Danelli all the time uh, in my household. All the time. Okay. He okay. brought him up lots, lots of times. Right. Never once, not one single time when he brought him up, John, ever. Did he ever mention that he was a soccer player? Right. Never yeah. came up because that was that was the culture in the 70s uh, and the and the 80s. Like soccer did not. Yeah, I try to tell people who weren't around then. you don't understand. I grew up sports crazy. That's how I got into this business. Uh, and soccer was not a thing. It barely existed in the United States. There were pockets in that, you know, where it mattered. But. Now, what you have now is such a dramatic change, and it's so wonderful to see. I didn't fall in love with the game until I was 30 years old, the 1990 World Cup, when it was when it was uh, put on television really for the first time, beginning to end by Turner Sports. And I said to myself, everybody thinks this is the biggest deal. Why? Let me let me find this out. And I just got hooked that year. I mean, I I was I was already a sports journalist for nearly a decade and uh and and never really paid the sport any mind at all until that that's how much it's changed now i've been to i think uh four world cups five world cups something like that to uh, cover the national teams 
men's and women's and, and all of that, um, it's, it's changed that much uh, in my lifetime. And so it's really cool that, you know, you bring up Buff uh, to talk about that. And it's really cool that you have a forum to talk about what a great soccer player Buff was back in the day, because it, you know, I can tell you this, man, 35 years ago, even if podcasts had existed, <laughs> you wouldn't have been talking about soccer on one of them. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I, we, you know, I, we saw, it was interesting because with Messi this week, you know, making his debut with into Miami and all of that, it, it brought me back to Pele. It brought me back to that moment because it was an amazing moment. It was diff, totally different. You, you, you know, you, you experienced that time, but to, to see Pele now, I didn't see him at Randall stadium uh, on Randall's Island at Downing stadium, but I didn't see that. Now that would, that in itself, like, I think there's some sort of legend to that uh, story as well, although it, it's there for you to watch on YouTube, wherever you want to find the highlights uh, from that day. But but there is some legend there, you know, talking about playing on glass on the field. And, you know, trust me, I played on that field 10, 12 years later. It, it was everything that they made it out to be crappiest field and all that, but under the Triborough bridge and there's only one way to get on and off. And it, it that's the main, I mean, just think of it now, 35 or almost 40, you know, plus years, actually almost 50 plus years later, uh, we're talking about messy and there was the biggest thing that ever happened here in the United States as far as soccer, uh, professional soccer. Um, you know, we'll see. I, I think it's, it's exciting. It is absolutely very, very exciting. And to think, Mike, we were this close to having Messi at Highmark Stadium, but instead over kind of going towards your way over in Cincinnati, they're going to be hosting um, Miami uh, in the Open Cup. Um, but that's it. The Hounds were, were there. They were competing with Cincinnati for, yeah. to get to that semifinal spot. So it almost happened. That would have been something else. Yes. Yes. That would have been amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, uh, thanks again for, for joining me. Uh, this is a good, you know, we're really focused on U.S. women's soccer team, but uh, I do like having a, it's a little bit of added conversation. I think yeah. it made for a, a fun podcast. I appreciate it very much, John. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Mike. Have a good day. You too.